to be honest, if someone drinks a smart brew beer at a venue and then goes on to find other beers, great. It's a gateway. I'd rather drink that than seltzer. Let me put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) As as someone that currently makes seltzer, Matt, uh, we'll have have that discussion at another time. Welcome to Brews News Week, recorded on 18 August 2022. I'm Matt Kirkegaard, founder and editor of Brews News, and I'm joined by industry consultant Sabrina Kunz and Bright Star Brewing Brewer, Brewing Consultant and IBA State Chapter Lead for South Australia, Steve Brockman. Steve, great to have you uh, have you on as a special guest. Hey, Steve. G'day, Matt. G'day, Sabrina. How are you both? We're very, very well. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. A long-time listener, first-time participant. Uh, well, in, in this particular show, but as we were just discussing off mic, you were a very, very early guest on uh, when it was a hybrid version, I think uh, after Jade Flavelle in one of her early appearances. A very, very long time ago, I did come on as a, a Wobber events coordinator. So it's good to be back. Well, actually, even though this is episode 382 officially of Brews News Week, when we reset the clock... Last week, we actually had posted the 700 episode of content that cool. we've put out um, since August 2011, I think we first recorded. So, uh, yeah, um, it was great great to have you back. Now, Steve, for those, because you have spent a lot of time, you, you've been in the industry for such a long time that we could have spoken to you way back then, but you also spent a fair bit of time overseas. You started in WA, but you're now in South Australia. We are going to revisit your story and learn all things Steve Brockman in an upcoming Beer as a Conversation. But for those who maybe don't know you yet, um, just give us a quick potted history of Steve Brockman. So I uh, started up in WA, uh, worked for Little Creatures uh, on the packaging line as my first job in the brewing industry, and then went to uni to do the uh, brewing course at Edith Cowan University. Um, that's where I met my partner, Steph Cope, who is also a brewer. Um, oh. And uh, I was working at uh, the Monk Brewery in Fremantle. Steph is working at Gage Roads. And then we thought, hey, let's go overseas. And we thought we'd go over to the UK like a lot of other Australian brewers do. But uh, Steph said, no, I think we can get to the US. So we ended up going to the US for a, uh, a year on a, uh, a visa that was available at the time, but no longer. And did a big trip around called the Two Brewers Abroad, uh, where we visited almost a brewery a day. So about 350 breweries. Cool. Over the course of a year, and then uh, ended up uh, living and working in Las Vegas for six years, and then recently returned home. Uh, Steph was at the Weedy for a minute, I was at Mismatch, and now uh, doing a bit of brewing consulting and just helped to start a lovely brewery in Thebidin called Bright Star Brewing. So that's the story so far. And that's what we'll feature in Beer as a Conversation in uh, coming weeks, apart from amplifying you know all of the questions that I want to dig down to from uh, from from that potted history but we've got you on this week to talk about the news of this week and uh, let's roll into that fantastic excited first story Dainton beer crowdfund commences Dainton beer launched its equity crowdfund campaign last week and has already surpassed its 350,000 minimum subscription the brewery is looking for a maximum of 1.8 million dollars from retail investors on the virtual platform a subscription that values the company at $31.5 million, more than double the amount it was worth in its 2019 equity crowdfunding raise. Dainton, uh, Dainton's previous 2019 crowdfund promised to launch a new taproom with the funds raised. However, this never eventuated, highlighting uh, a, a key issue uh, with equity crowdfunding about uh, whether what is promised uh, has to be delivered. Um, in, uh, 
maybe go to you, Steve. Uh, We've banged on about equity crowdfunding over the last couple of uh, episodes. So, uh, mate, is this something that you want to weigh into? Uh, I mean, I hope that these uh, crowdfundings close eventually because I'm getting Facebook targeted ads. I'm sick of Facebook targeted ads. Tell me about it. I'm not sure if they've just gone guy with a beard Mm. into craft beer. No beard, no tattoos here, and I'm getting bombarded with (laughs) them as well. Me too. Every time I I open my Facebook, it's like, would you like to invest? I'm like, no, guys, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I mean, power to them for uh, doing what they need to do. I'm not going to cast any aspersions for anyone chasing money or or capital, but, uh, yeah, it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time in the industry to to be finding money. and this is obviously one of the ways that people are doing it. And I take your point, capital is capital and businesses need capital. And the promise of equity crowdfunding is it gives businesses that capital through alternative sources, You know, whereas bigger companies have the ability to list on the stock exchange or go out and this does that. I, I guess one of my concerns that I've spoken about um, and I'd love your thoughts on is some of the valuations that are placed on these businesses in terms of getting that capital. So some of the best supporters of the breweries, who are the people who are buying in, are buying in at valuations that I don't believe any one of the breweries that has raised will ever come close to selling for. Um, and my concern is that the, 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 the flow-on impact that has for, for the industry in terms of people who don't understand the industry believing that that's what a small brewery is worth and thinking that they that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and seeing you know what I call dumb money running into the industry to open breweries that is already fairly saturated um, but then also given that these are held as an investment and my basic understanding of investing is that investing gives you a return when none of these businesses are going to deliver a return and possibly you know hopefully not but potentially people are going to lose their money and when the realized assets of these businesses show the that the values aren't what they were that it casts a bit of a pall you know it, it, it turns craft brewing into the modern day equivalent of emu farming yeah yeah and that's probably a concern for me as well so every time i've seen this online i've I've definitely been in the comments section trying to find out what the attraction for someone is investing in these kind of um, equity crowd funds because, as as you say, Matt, I don't understand the investment bit to it. For me, if I invested, I'd want to see at the end of that where is the exit point. Um, and it very well for these people could be intangible. You know, it could be those, I really want to support this brand, I have an affinity to this brand, you know, this brewery over here is promising X, Y, and Z, and that'll help benefit me. Mm. And it may not be monetary. It may be intangible. You know, you get a piece of the brand. It's it's something for them. Um, but yeah, just the the illiquidity of those those shares that they have is what would I would see as a concern. And then having listened to a couple of other podcasts, especially with the guys from Virtual on those podcasts, I know they're about to launch a trading program to allow you to trade the shares. I think Parrot Dog in New Zealand has the ability to trade shares. Mm. But then my concerns are is how is the value set for those shares? I think it's, so to both of your points, if I step back and even um, this latest article, and I've got a couple of comments on it, to me the concern is I actually don't think that the regulatory framework 
is appropriate because mm. um, to call it investing um, for all the reasons you've just noted doesn't seem like a, a, um, a the right word for the activity that's occurring. And the platform, which sounds like it's the ASX, is actually a marketing entity as opposed to a regulatory yeah. Yeah, so, so, you know, as Birchall noted themselves, the creation of platforms like Birchall were made possible under this new regulatory framework. That has now, you know, been in the works for a few years and probably needs to be revisited in light of some of the stuff that we're seeing. Um, and I think there were – Matt, you started with raising a concern and I think we've talked about it a number of times where – a brewery will say we're going to do X with the funds that we raise and then they don't do X and there is actually no um, recourse for investors. And often they're not even told about it. They're not. There's no explanation given to them. They're not told about it. I actually think that a business, when I reflected on um, this particular article, a business has to be able to say we were going to do A um, as we got further down A um, – the environment around us shifted, we have now made a strategic decision that we're now going to do B. A business has to be able to do that. Mm. But in um, but this regulatory framework does not allow for an investor to say, I don't I no longer agree with B and I want to pull out because there is no way to extract your yeah. money to your point, right? So I actually don't think that's a failing of the business. They should be able to make strategic mm-hmm. decisions as the business evolves because you might say I'm going to do A and it's not. It's no longer right. Um, and COVID has shown us that. But this framework doesn't allow an investor to go, hey, um, you haven't told me what you're going to do. I don't get to be present at a shareholder meeting. I don't get to be on a quarterly phone call update with institutional investors like ASX-listed companies. And because we're not seeing those large institutional investors, so far investors are not um, coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, you didn't do anything. And if um, we're not happy with what you've done. But, you know, a point someone else made recently, as the environment tightens up for people in their own financial lives – they may start looking for a return where they hadn't done previously and they might start saying, actually, I've got $3,000 in that business over there. My life's gotten harder. I want my $3,000. And I think over the next couple of years, we're going to see this framework be tested. So um, that's where I would sort of – I think that um, a lot of the breweries are playing within the space that has opened up for them. They're making the most of it. Dainton pointed out they're not even getting the right – advice and to be fair the Nick Bucketty's interview that Claire just did you know pointed out even in a DA process they're paying highly skilled town planners who are giving them the wrong advice and the biggest piece of advice that um that was given in in that beer as a conversation was don't trust your consultants know everything yourselves Mm. and I think that reflects back on this crowdfunding thing if you have an obligation to report court report to ASIC, you need to know that. You cannot rely on a small accountant well, or a virtual or someone else. Quite apart from the regulatory requirement to file with ASIC, the promise that you're making to your shareholders is they are owners of the business. So regardless of any requirement to do it, why weren't they reporting to the people who are supposedly investors and owners in their business? Oh, further to that, Matt, I think, you know, if – this like you should be reporting to ASIC and you're not doing it surely the platform virtual itself 
would want to make sure that that company is doing it in order to make sure every other crowdsourced investment going forward isn't viewed in a negative light because of ones previously. Mm. I, I believe there's a, a, um, a media company that may have raised those questions. And not got um, a response, Steve. Steve. <laughs> okay, gotcha. I'm you glad to see other people are thinking in the same way. <laughs> so Future Magic that's currently raising, um, they've met their minimum. Their minimum was 200000 They're currently at 236000 and they close tomorrow morning. And... Um, three ravens tomorrow uh, so Friday morning so probably by the time folks are hearing this podcast and three ravens um, have also just met their minimum um, just over five hundred thousand five hundred dollars is where they're at so, so they're still just, short no they've just, oh, just gotten over just okay. just gotten over with and they close tomorrow morning so that is very distinct from other capital raises on the platform that we've seen where they are meeting their maximum targets. Um, both of these will have just gotten over their minimum targets by closure. Um, on the other hand, Dainton, that they've just officially opened and they're well and truly over their minimum um, with seven days to go. So that's sort of for anyone who's running the money, yeah. <laughs> um, that's where it's up to. Adding all three together, that's a million dollars. That's a yep. million dollars raised mm. yep. from, in the last three crowd funds. Yep. From caring, from people who are really um, invested in those brands and want a T-shirt. But I feel that the Steve's, Steve's running out. Not the Steve's running out. But Steve, what are you hearing from other brewers? Are you hearing brewers talking about, well, if they're going to do it, we may as well get this money as well? I mean, I think that was my actual Facebook comment on one of your posts. Okay. I was like, I feel at this point, as a brewer, am I missing out on just free money? Mm. You know, um, Capitalizing or, or raising capital in this market is incredibly hard. And the way that this is being done from looking as a brewer within the industry, I'm like, is it easy? Like, it looks pretty easy from the outside. And I think I went into the article a little bit that uh, they were talking about how they've got three of them working on the campaign for eight weeks full time. Well, for $350,000, you'd very much hope that eight weeks worth of work is worth it. Like, yeah. there obviously is a bit of stuff to do behind the scenes, but... There's a lot of money being raised and I guess my concern and the conversations I have with other brewers is, you know, these people that are raising money at the moment are established brands. Um, there's one out at the moment that is not an established brand that's starting um, and they seem to be doing well, which is which is good for them. But I'm really concerned when, you know, not this round, not next round, but maybe a round in the future, someone that has who's a bad actor or has bad intentions you know, gets in and does it. You know, this industry is not 100% squeaky clean. We know there's individuals and operators that have had bad intentions and done things through other methods. What happens when they get hold of crowdfunding and, you know, tar the entire industry with one brush? Mm. So and, and I guess the, that is probably the concern. The yeah. argument back is, you know, uh, investors make their own decisions and, you know, they can decide the... But that's where the, the transparency and my criticism is the transparency and... Uh, you know, as you said, if there is a business that's not meeting its minimum requirements, how can they open another, you know, even an expression of interest? But anyway. It, it would be good. Uh, my biggest thing, again, kind of coming back to the platform and the environment, is it does feel a little bit like the industry is being um, targeted in terms of the volume of crowd funds that are going on at any one time. And it will be interesting to see if other industries, certainly see, you've seen a lot in distilling, but it would be interesting to see if other small, 
we're not a small industry, other artisan type industries start to have a similar feeling that there's too much happening within the industry at any one time. So it'll be interesting to see sort of at that level up. I'll tell you one business that's not making money out of equity crowdfunding. It's this Bruce one. News. <laughs> I, was just, I, was, I, I want you to I'm, know I thought this was a rallying. I thought this was because no. he, he I, I actually thought voice. rallings. I was like, this is rallings. Oh, That's no. This is a segue. I was like, rallings <laughs> voice. This no. doesn't sound right. No, no. I, 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 I think there have been a lack Terrible of segue. Renewals. Terrible segue. Cancel. <laughs> I'm actually going to jump ahead a little bit because there is something that is tangentially um, related. Um and that is the article that we ran from uh, a new American contributor, Kate Bernot. US breweries are site for sale, but who's buying? With Australia looking to the US for beer style trends, the latest business trend in the United States, breweries putting up the for sale sign, will it also take hold here? Kate Bernot of Good Beer Hunting's sight lines looked into what's driving the growing move towards breweries looking to sell in the US and whether buyers are there. And this article came out of a chat that I had with Kate um, just sort of looking at US trends and she just basically, you know, very offhandedly said, well, everyone's for sale. And I said, hold on. Um, and, you know, we recently had Melvin Brewing that was, you know, five or six years ago, one of the hot darling craft breweries recently issued a statement um, and posted, I think, on Pro Brewer, look, we're for sale. Anyone want to buy in? And a lot of breweries over there that maybe aren't for sale, that, that aren't publicly for sale, they are quietly looking, and that's something I've noticed very much here, breweries for sale, um, and both that brings in the, 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 the multiples that crowdfunding is charging, mm. but then also who's buying, because if you're going to get high multiples and high values for breweries, there have to be buyers for them, and in Australia, we're not seeing that. We are seeing a couple of hotel groups. Recently, we saw Little Bang you know, exit, um, you know, very, uh, I, I would describe respectably the way that they went about their process um but to a hotel group but uh you know what what are you hearing there steve yeah i think it was an interesting article to read actually i think um probably the key point in that was saying that in 2010 like a lot of those or in the 2010s a lot of those acquisitions were strong bands that were able to be grown whereas the difference today is it's a lot of brands that are kind of circling the drain looking for kind of a way out um so, you know, obviously a tough couple of years, everything's going through the roof as far as the supply side of things. I think a lot of people are just going, this is a slog. And this is a slog that I've been doing for 10, 15 years. It's that maturing market. What's my exit plan? You know, unless you have kids that are interested in taking it over and making it a family-run business, how are you getting out? And there's 9,000 breweries there. Not, not every brewery can be bought. <laughs> That's the sad reality of it. You mentioned off mic right at the start that, um, you know, you'd been in this industry for so long and, and that a lot of the peers that you had, um, you know, when you first started are now heading up breweries. And, you know, we were talking about the other reason that things are for sale is that people that sort of grew up with it and had the passion are, are you know, at the age um, and at the life cycle of their own personal lives where they actually just want to exit yeah but to your point they, they might not be circling the drain as businesses but they're not going to be bolter stone and wood size um in terms of sort of attraction or on that growth because the market is more mature so it is a much harder um there's a lot of reasons that current owners might want to move on 
but not everybody's got a clear succession plan. I think it's an extension of what you guys have been talking about over the last couple of weeks as well. You know, breweries that are starting now are starting in a completely different environment to breweries that would have started 15 years ago. So that really just means the breweries that started 15 years ago, either they have to be nimble and slightly change what they're doing, they can't continue on the same track. And that's a lot of effort, you know. Mm. And growing in craft beer, you've got to run, 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 run until you get to a plateau. And then you look at the next kind of run and go, do we have the effort? Do we have the time? Do we have the money? Do we have the heart? Do we have the passion to continue to do this? And it gets harder each time because you've got so many people relying on you. You've got so many staff, so many family members. I know that, you know, the guys from Stonerwood and Bolter both express that. Like they just didn't want to risk their staff's livelihoods to continue on to the next step. It was just a step too far. And so with that, you know, if you're a smaller brewery, I think too in in Australia too, if you're starting a brewery and you're thinking you're going to become a massive brewery and sell all of this beer and then sell, I think that that dream's gone. I think there's only a a select number of breweries in Australia that can achieve that now. I think what you need to do now is you need to focus on a, a local community, be that local hub, you know, be that good steward of craft beer. I, I think that that massive production brewery um, starting up now is 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 a pipe dream. To oh, be and if you're going to do it, you need serious capital. You know, not equity crowdfunding capital, serious capital because it's a marketing driven business um, yeah. and a unit cost business. And uh, I mean, the, the way I've been describing the brewing industry post, you know, mass purchases as, as mass as, as it was is if you're starting a brewery it's a little bit like buying a news agency you're buying yourself a job um, but you're not going to get multiples of it you know you can do it while you enjoy working in it anytime that you're not there you're paying somebody else to be there um, and do it you know do it because you enjoy it but know that that's not going to be forever and to your point, um, I think both of you have made it, that the point of the concern at an industry level for the valuations that are being discussed publicly through the crowd funds is that if you are Fred's Brewing and you've been at it for 15 years, you've got 50 staff um, and you and your business partner want to leave and have a tree change and open up a farm and you want to sell, there is not a lot of publicly available factual information about what appropriate um, valuations are. So it can either, A, be challenging with a business partner to agree Mm. on what a valuation is if you want to sell from one to the other, or B, investors coming in from outside the industry have an overinflated view about just how much revenue and profit you should be making for those kinds of valuations that they're seeing. And so there's a real there has the potential to be a real disconnect that actually makes it harder for people who want to exit for all sorts of reasons and sell or even, quite frankly, you know, if you're creating an employee share scheme in your business and your employees are going, but um, up the road they're valued for $26 million. why are you telling me we're only valued for $3 million and I can only have a share worth a dollar? Um, that's not fair. I'm going to leave. So it, it creates... Um, it starts the conversation in a really different place when you're trying to have all of those money conversations about what do we do with the next step in the business. Yeah, I thought that article was very good too because it touched on a lot of reasons why some breweries are buying as well in the US. So mm. Maui Brewing taking over modern times, that's a clever geographical play. Like they yep. need somewhere on the mainland to produce beer. Yep. Um, so I think 
there's still breweries out there that are buying and it's interesting to see smaller breweries kind of buying up some of the bigger ones. Mm. At great prices, by the way. Yeah, well, Ballast Point went for a billion dollars and <laughs> yeah. then resold for a hundred million. That's ten cents in the dollar. Yeah. yeah. That's not good math. That's bad business. So <laughs> That yeah. is interesting. I wonder if we'll see like mergers of smaller groups. Like we did see, didn't we well, just we see are. someone take over retail? Remind me, Bucket Boys and... Well, Bucket Boys was taken over by... Um, Batch. Batch. Batch, yeah. Um, but again, take over, I think it's assumed the business and the responsibilities for it as opposed to a purchase. But we did see Fortitude bought by another brewery and we are seeing, you know, uh, Ballistic in Queensland has bought a number. Steve, what's your take on... Um, again, you, you mentioned the strategy and, and, and the smart strategy that a lot of breweries are doing. We are seeing increasingly breweries, rather than expanding their distribution footprint, expanding their retail footprint by you know getting into taproom businesses, which again is a, seems like a very very logical, sensible move where you capture the retail dollar. But if everyone's doing it. It's a crowded market, you know, and, and, and if everybody's opening more tap rooms, but more people aren't going out, you know, you're diluting the, the, the market somehow. But then the, the flip side is one of the things that I've long said about the brewing industry is so many breweries have been started by a couple of mates who over a couple of beers and they loved home brewing and hospitality is a completely yeah. different game. Hospitality is a extraordinarily different game. Um, and in my brewing consulting role, I actually do kind of talk to people about that. People come to me going, I've got this great idea. All my mates say my beer is good. I'm like, cool. What are you going to do with it? Like, How are you going to sell it? If Ideally, you want to sell it across your own tap room. And if you've got no experience in hospitality, you'd want to get someone in that knows because it is an absolute beast. If you, you can make the beer, the beer is the easy bit. Selling it is the hard bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I do see established breweries too trying to implement that hub and spoke model, um, which you see in the US a fair bit. I think sometimes breweries here are going too far away from home mm. and going into markets they probably shouldn't be. I think uh, seeing in the US some of the good ones that really work are a centralised production facility and then within an hour of that facility, you've got multiple tap rooms. Um, something like Modern Times actually was a pretty good example. A lot of tap rooms where um, staff can transfer between different tap rooms for shifts. Mm. And so you're basically taking the entire ethos and the brand of that business and you're sharing it amongst all those tap rooms quite easily. Whereas right. I think if you've got a satellite tap room in another state, it becomes a lot harder to go, this is who we are, this is who we are at this venue, this is who we are at that venue. How do we make sure that it's, that's rock solid? Um, so yeah, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts from the US talking about this exact issue. Um, a lot of people are seeing that I might not be selling as much out the back door or a more attractive proposition for me is to go to my local population center and build a tap room downtown, but it's, it's not as easy as you think it is. Mm. Yep. That's, it's interesting. So, I mean, I know I've said this before, um, but, you know, Sprig and Fern um, in New Zealand were one of the first that took on this tavern model. So they actually, you know, uh, and it's really interesting. It's a franchise model. So they don't necessarily own all of the taverns themselves. Um, they're franchised out, but all of the taps are, with a couple of exceptions, Sprig and Fern. And they really started first, three in Nelson, then, you know, expanded out from their home base as it were um to, and 
and the, the closer you are to where the production facility is, the easier it was to maintain that um, Sprig and Fernside and Ballistic have done the same, which is they've sort of gone, we're going to own Queensland. We're going to really focus on southeast Queensland, then Queensland, and we're going to build out in Queensland. But we're really um, – we're going to stick close to home in that sense so that we've sort of got this identity because once we go outside of that, it's much harder. And I think in Australia too, we've still got a little bit of that state, you know, pride and, you know, yeah. drinking in this state or drinking in that state. There's still a bit of this brand's coming over – building a tap room in this state, but they're from somewhere else, there's still a little bit of a yeah. hesitation maybe. Can I um, link that to, to an, jump in on that? another article, Matt, just yep. sort of which is sort of tangentially related, but um, there was the recent article um, that Vivian Tavalovich, the journalist, wrote about the art of brewing the right beer styles for your area and – you know, this is part of a beer tourism series that Australia's craft beer capital on the Sunshine Coast has helped fund. Um, but the purpose of that article was to really talk about, and I think it sort of relates to that. So there's this, um, the concept of I don't want to drink beer out of New South Wales, but there's also the markets can be so different because the beer of you drink in cans. Cairns, not cans, um, yeah. is different to the beer that you want to drink in a Melbourne winter, for example. Exactly. And so, you know, if you're a brand that is is built off the back of, you know, cold winters, moving north to Queensland where, you know, lagers still hail, you might, you're, you're, even your brand aesthetic and the way you go about things might not be the right fit. So I think, you know, Steve, that's a nice kind of rationale as well about that. Yeah, I thought this was a great article, actually. Um, it seems obvious, but then <laughs> a lot of breweries that possibly aren't executing this. So I would say in South Australia, it's almost a requirement to have a dark beer on at all times, at all times of the year. Um, dark beer here has a strong history. So, you know, with Cooper's Best Extra Stout, you've got Southwark Stout that used to be brewed at the Old West End. I say Old West End now because it's flattened. Mm. And then a lot of other craft breweries are bringing examples of great stouts and dark lagers and all of that. So a lot of the people here in South Australia, you know, are looking for a dark beer when they go out. Mm. So if you were starting a craft brewery today... I, you know, consult with people all the time. I'm like, if you're starting, you got to make sure you have a dark beer in that lineup. If you don't have a dark beer in that lineup, you'll be asked about it all the time until you get it on. So, there yeah. was a, it was one of the podcasts that you listened to, Steve, Steal This Beer with John Hall and Augie Carton, by any chance? I do listen to that, yep. Yeah, because th- they had a great episode last week, I think it was, where they spoke to Ron Pattinson, the beer historian. And, you know, one of the things that came up is one of the things that we talk about a, a lot here is the distortionary or the impact that government legislation, particularly tax, has on beer innovation. Um, and, you know, in the US, a lot of Australian brewers have looked to the US as the home of craft beer and have tried to replicate the big... IPAs that they make um, and for the, all of the excitement and also the flavour. But the point that they were making there is that because of the way that beer is taxed in the US, you're almost punished to make lower alcohol beer um, because the cost of producing that is almost exactly the same as, you know, a, a 6 7 8% beer as it is a 4% beer when you look at the fractionally more in, ingredients cost um, that's involved. Whereas in Australia, yeah. I, I think we're one of the best makers of sub-5% beer in the world, and particularly in the post-Stone and Wood Pacific Ale world, sub-4% beer, which seems to be the sweet spot of making those truly sessionable beers because 
the tax on higher ABV is so punitive. Um, and that's another thing that I don't think, you know, when homebrewers who don't have to pay excise but love making big high alcohol beers and the excitement of those innovations suddenly have to try and sell them and make the cost set up when they're paying excise on top of that. That's another um, factor that I think brewers need to consider when they decide what their core range or their styles are going to be. Yeah, and I mean, to illustrate the tax point, so when Steph and I were working in Las Vegas, we would brew a beer and federal and state tax together on a 50-litre keg would come out to about $3.50 US. And to do the same thing here, being a volumetric tax system here in Australia on a 5% beer, uh, you're looking at about $60 worth of tax. And in the US, in that Vegas system, I could brew a 3.5% you know, Berliner Weiss or a 12.5% double IPA and still pay $3.50 a keg. So it allows a huge amount more creativity and I think because of that, you know, Steph and I put on an XPA and a session IPA at one point. No one in America would touch it. Yeah. It's not it's not within their they're like, why would I drink that? It's a less flavoursome version of that's that that's in their experience. That's a less flavoursome version of the beer that I want. Yeah. For the same price. For the same price. Yeah. And it's a very drink it's a very different drinking culture over there. So um I uh yeah, actually did touch on this point. I uh, wrote an article for Beer and Brewer as part of my uh, deep dive series on how to make certain beer styles and mid strengths you know as far as that kind of category australian brewers are some of the best in the world of nailing you know yep. all of the flavor big bodies with a relatively small alcohol which i think a lot of other brewers especially in the u.s scene would really struggle um to pull off so yeah We'd better keep moving with the news. Like we, uh, great rabbit hole to disappear down, um, but a rabbit hole nonetheless. One of the things we were talking about is that if you are going to open a brewery, you need some serious capital. And uh, a brewery on the Gold Coast sounds like it's very much in that. As Burley teams up with Zarafi's Coffee founder on a new brewery, a new brewery venture specialising in lagers is set to open next year in Eagleby, Queensland. The six million dollar project, dubbed Parenti Brewing, is led by Zarafi's Coffee and Tonkin Property Group co-founder Kenton Campbell with Burley Brewing assisting in the pairing and execution of the project. This was one that really interested me because Burley is one of the very early um, craft breweries in Queensland, um, going back to the days that they had to pioneer a market to then try and populate. And it was very interesting to hear them talk about, (laughs) to to see them involved and uh, try and understand exactly what that partnership was. Burley has always done lagers first as well, right? They've been a very mm. – um, uh, w- we know that they've focused on lagers and, in fact, they've talked about their love of lagers and and so it seems like a very um, similar proposition <laughs> and, and why you would be funding and supporting a similar proposition – that will then be a competitor for you in the future. And so it seems strange. That being said, um, it's very lucky that owner-founder of Zarafa's Coffee got someone as um, skilled as the Fieldings to support him to enter the market. I mean, I think that was good from his side. Um, but I just – it just felt a bit odd and I, I suspect that there – you know, there's got to be all sorts of deals – to have made this worthwhile that uh, we don't know about. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, again, I'm not. It, it's just 
so different. We are, we ask questions. Go read the article. Um, do you, have you got anything to add to it, Steve? Any observations? Uh, I thought six million dollars is a good amount of money to raise for a, a larger production brewery, but uh, one million liters, I think, is the key there. I think um, Burley might be able to maybe lean on their production scale yeah. as well yeah. um, and get them to that point quicker. So I think it's a little bit of collaboration rather than competition mm. there. Yeah. But uh, if it results in more black giraffe, I am down for it. That <laughs> was great. Hey, Matt, so if you were starting a brewery and you needed to get label stickers or packaging. Is that your Rallings voice there, Sabrina? It is my Rallings voice. <laughs> if you were launching a new brewery, where would you go? I would go to Rallings, actually, because oh, Rallings, no labels. They are great people to work with. I'm not even going to read the script. You know Rallings. They do good stuff. They work very closely with their big supporters of the, uh, the, the brewing industry, and they turn things around very, very quickly and very, very well. So if you want labels, if you want billboards for your cans, uh, if you're making lagers in cans or stouts in Melbourne and you want to put a bright uh, shrink wrap sleeve on them or get cartons, they are your people. And you can give them a call on 1300 852 235 or email sales at rallingsprint.com.au and see how they can help make your brand sing. That was seamless. We were so seamless. <laughs> but you'll find them in our Pro. Uh, business directory. Pro. Looking at other stories, good drinks hails progress despite hospitality disruption. From your neck of the woods uh, there, Steve, uh, originally hailing from WA, Good Drinks Australia, owner of Gage Roads Brewing Company, reported a strong year according to its full year results, which were posted to the ASX last week, hailing the 16% annual growth of its own brands as outperforming the beer market. Total revenue increased 30% to $70.7 million as annual production volumes rose 13% to 19.3 million litres. However, earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation, otherwise known as EBITDA, declined 22% for the year to $8.4 million. Good Drink said that this was a good result given the industry-wide disruption in hospitality in key trading periods. Um, Good Drink seems to be going from strength to strength, Steve. Yeah, it's fantastic to see, actually, seeing it, the whole almost life cycle from old Gage Road days when I was still kicking around in WA all the way through. So um, that new venue looks spectacular as someone from WA. That's uh, a lot of memories on that that particular jetty because that's where the uh, jetty to Rotto takes off. Yep. Right, so okay. So for, for them to nail that spot, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting play being obviously so close to little creatures, um, doing exactly the same thing almost, but... Yep. Um, a million, a million dollars in profit for that bar in the first, first sort of operation period. So that's that's good going. Obviously, they're doing well. It's a and it's a lovely venue. I had the um, yeah. privilege or the, the the pleasure to go there um, when I was there for the Wobber conference, um, and it was yeah, just again I just sitting there and looking out over the water. Um, you know, beer just tastes. You know, no matter how good the beer is, it just tastes better. In a good location. Yeah, um, it's a good experience. Yeah. But it's so that my observation I took away is, you know, they, they've made some pretty big strategic plays as a large ASX company. Their staff also give a lot, um, you know, to the IBA, um, a lot on sort of quality. So they seem to be doing, you know, if, if you take that as a um, as an example of the internal culture that they're encouraged to um, you know, learn, develop, give back to industry. Um, they've made some big strategic plays, as I started out saying, in terms of, you know, signing distribution deals with a view to actually get more boots on the ground in terms of sales. 
they seem to be doing a lot of right things that are right that would objectively sound right and then it's clearly um, paying dividends in terms of um, the financial performance. So that's great to see. Actually, Steve, as someone who's worked at Little Creatures, we, have you seen the um, brewery uh, network that we're in the process of putting together where uh, we're trying to capture the life cycle of you know, the family tree of, of breweries? And uh, did, did you fill that out? It's been on my list of things to do, mate, so I'll have to get onto that. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic idea because especially in WA's brewing scene, for a while there is either which school did you go to, Little Creatures or Gage Road. Yeah. Those were like the kind of two different roads that you kind of went into and everyone has a touch point at some point. But yeah. nationally, so, when, when um, you see it, because um, it's a national look, you know, and Malt Shovel is there, but Little Creatures and Gage Roads are just, have just been two of the training grounds for, you know, the the... the brewing leaders, um, which, which you know, is such a powerful statement about those businesses. And I think a lot of it too was um, for a while there, that Edith Cowan University course, which is no longer running, was available as a point where you could come to. So a lot of people came from interstate to come study in Perth. And while they were there doing the brewing course, they needed jobs in the brewing industry. You know, Little Creatures and Gage Roads picked up a lot of those graduates and then they stuck around for a couple of years, then went back to their home states. So... That's um, a really interesting point yeah. about the value of having those, um, you know, courses and training grounds available um, throughout the country, actually, isn't it? That's a really good case study in that. Yeah, for sure. It's something as an IBA as well that we're looking at um, at a national level. So some states now have education centres and mm. some states have dropped off. So South Australia at the moment hasn't got a TAFE course. Yeah. And that's a big issue for us. So yeah. that's something we're trying to address. Cool. Well, if you need somebody to get in the ear of the uh, South Australian government, Steve, uh, let us know because we did a story this week, Queensland Breweries Urge to Take Up a Safety Program. Workplace Health and Safety Queensland is encouraging the state's brewers to get involved in the Safety Consultation Initiative, IPAM. The Injury Prevention and Management Program aims to reduce injuries in the workplace with no charge to participate, it is available to any Queensland employer with a work cover Queensland policy regardless of age or size. And apparently the response to that was so good that they sent us a note saying, we have great reach. So if you want us to uh, sort of nudge the New South Wales, uh, the, the South Australian government uh, towards training, maybe uh, issue us with a statement and we'll uh, <laughs> put it out for you. Fantastic. I'll, uh, I'll use you as a as a way of prodding them along. Um, I thought this is I thought this is actually fantastic. Great initiative. Mm. And I think, you know, breweries, I think a lot of maybe brewers initially getting into craft beer probably ignore safety and breweries are dangerous places. So I think this kind of stuff is overdue, to be honest. I think we need to have a little bit more regulation and a little bit more awareness as people that both own breweries or staff in breweries. You know, safety should be number one, big priority. Mm. Journalist Claire and I were having a discussion yesterday, you know, we were looking at some other resources that were available by one of the state governments in a completely different area, but we were saying, you know, as a small business, so often there are these kinds of resources available, but you have to go looking for them. And so, um, you know, the feedback that Bruce News got about this is by you know, putting an article out and encouraging people and just actually putting it right in front of them and saying, go here, there's a resource. Um, breweries were getting in touch and, and government were really pleased because it meets their metrics. And so it is that thing that's sort of, it's so hard when you're working in the business every day, head down, um, you know, trying to make sales, trying to keep it 
to, to tick off all of those things, but often there are ways to do it much more easily. And so that kind of constant communication stream about we found this, we've got the right town planner, we've got the right wastewater guy, <laughs> we've got the right, you know, that's so mm. important as an industry to be like the answers are already or the roadmap is already there. You don't have to reinvent the wheel and, and there is help out there. So um, I just thought this was such a great example of, of that kind of a thing. Yeah, I think also, you know, state-based guilds have a bit of responsibility there as well. Mm. You know, whatever you're going through as a brewery, another brewer in town has already gone through that. Yep. And it's about connecting those two people together. Mm. Steve, do you know somebody else that understands the needs of the brewing industry? Who else, who else understands the needs of the uh, brewing industry then, Matt? <laughs> So this is really unfair to be uh, throwing a brewing industry consultant, uh, those sorts of things. But Dixon Asia Pacific understands the importance of beer quality and just how important a brewing system is in terms of being efficient and reliable. That's where Dixon comes in. They supply the technical flow products you need to brew a good beer from hose and hose assemblies to valves, accessories, fittings and more. Need product advice, technical support or training? They can help you with that as well. Dixon, you can contact Dixon as they have product specialists that can help you with all of that. There is a link in the show notes or you can find them in the Brews News Business Directory and then look down and you'll see the link. I won't read it out because it's a bitly link and it won't make any sense and no one will remember it. But that's Dixon Asia Pacific. Great plug, Matt, because I'll plug them as well. As a recent brewery build, uh, half of my brewery, I think, has got Dixon products in it. So uh, always at the last minute when you need something, I give them a call and they get it to you pretty quick. So Aaron does a good job here in South Australia. Uh, I'll give him a plug as well. Awesome. Oh, look, that's a, a completely organic uh, uh, promotion. 100%. So, uh, Did not talk about that before. We, we, I'm we happy to not. give him a plug. Uh, yeah, I, I felt bad about throwing to you just in case you used a competitor or had an associate. <laughs> there you go. Dixon Asia no. Pacific. Steve Brockman recommends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Watch business just dive now. Yeah. We'll wait and see. Um, mate, is there anything before we dive into the mailbag is there anything that any news that's come across your um, attention probably just a, a bit of a plug knowing that in south australia we've got the uh institute of brewing and distilling conference coming up yep. in march next year so if people aren't aware of it probably jump on the uh, ibd website and have a bit of a look at it so it's actually celebrating 70 years so the uh, first uh, convention for the asia pacific region happened here in adelaide in the 50s and they're coming back and it's been a while. I think it's since Wellington 2018 since everyone's been able to get yeah. together mm. because of yeah. COVID and all the rest. Well, it was meant to be in Perth. It was meant to be in Perth and then unfortunately because of COVID it got cancelled. So, um, yeah, we're uh, as a community over here looking forward to March and just ironing out some of the details and making sure that everyone's going to have a really great time when they get here. Great so, plug and we'll certainly be, be plugging that uh, in the lead up to it. But um, let's move to Mailbag. Lark Whiskey is the mailbag sponsor um, to celebrate the launch of Wolf Release 5. And incidentally, it is sold out. So, you know, we're plugging this. The the, the whiskey has sold out. Um, so don't go looking for it. But if you want a bottle, if you want to try it, send us an email, send us a letter, um, reach out through Facebook because you can still get your hands on one. Uh, because to celebrate the launch of the Wolf Release 5 and the fifth year of the shared vision between the House of Lark and Victoria's Wolf of the Willows Brewery, this week's mailbag, Letter of the Week, will receive a Wolf 5 Boilermaker pack, including a Wolf 5 Single Malt Whiskey, a Wolf 5 Johnny Smoke Porter, a Lark Beer Glass, and a Lark Glen Can Whiskey Glass. Wolf Release 5 launched on uh, August 8th, but... Too late. You can't get your hands on it unless you send us an email. And someone who did send us an email 
and is going to get that fantastic pack um, is Dave Hearns, who commented on the Smart Brew. Now, it's a longer one, so just wanted to pass on my praise for the chat with Brian Watson. I found it super interesting, in particular the Smart Brew model and concept. It made me so curious, I wanted to find out which venues pubs are operating the system in Australia and could only find the basement brewing in the Bankstown Sports Club. Randomly, I used to stay at the Bankstown Sports Club for work, commuting to Melbourne, and only thought of it as being incompatible venue for craft beer offering, think pokies, sticky carpet and punch-ups during the UFC main events. Okay, well, there's <laughs> doesn't make me want to go there except for the beer. Um, I had the same immediate thought as Sabrina on last week's uh, Brews News podcast. Pubs, hospital venues setting up smart brew tanks and setting themselves up to access a diverse range of their own excise-free beer up to $350,000 threshold. Based on the Bankstown example, we could see the concept gaining traction in the unhip outer suburbs of the likes of Sydney or Melbourne. Or with the right marketing budget and strategy or hospitality offering, can we see this turn up in Collingwood or Merrickville? I'm sure the home brewers and beer geeks would turn their noses up in the absence of a brew kit. However, I think uh, the possibility, especially with the road partly paved by the likes of Wildflower um, and Range with their tap room in Abbotsford. Either way, I'm looking forward to keeping tabs on this space. And actually, the one thing um, he didn't... Great email. Uh, thank you very much, Dave. Um, send us your postal address so we can get your prize out to you. But the thing that struck me about that, and you, you actually heard me double take during the um, conversation, is that one of the Four Pines venues has a smart brew. One of their um, brew pubs on the Gold Coast um, had, had, had the smart brew system. And you'd think that if anybody had access to trained brewers, but for one of their brew pubs, so and I, I don't think location necessarily counts people out um, for it. And uh, just up the road from the Brews News offices in Petrie Terrace in Brisbane, there's a... Fritzenberger, that is a smart brew place, and uh, people seem to be quite happy to go there and drink the varied offerings. What, what, what's your thought, Steve? How is the quality of that beer? That, that's my that's my biggest kind of concern with this kind of system. Like, I don't know. I can see the tax aspect to it, um, but I kind of liken it to opening a bakery making white wings packet cakes. You know, a lot of it's provided to you. Here's a recipe. Follow the instructions. There you go. I don't. I don't know. Uh, but of any again, and, and that I, I guess that. that's where this what I call the post-craft world. You know, where once upon a time it was the artisan and the hard slog and doing it the hard way um, had the romance and the marketing story attached to it. But if you know, for punters um, who just want to drink a beer in a venue and have the feel of drinking in the stainless tanks, it's near enough for them anyway. But uh, one of the things that Brian pointed out is that they've won a number you know they've entered the beers in awards and won medals so i guess same thing as a cooper's kit you know you've got mates who make dreadful stuff you'd never want to drink and other people who go yeah that's pretty good stuff but how many people are opening a venue and serving cooper's kit? well no but that's that's, yeah but but it's 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 the commercial version of a cooper's kit i guess is the uh, yeah yeah and i guess you're probably talking to the wrong wrong side of the industry because you know maybe i'm that artisan that loves craft beer and you know it's all about the craft um but uh yeah i i I guess this kind of venue or or play i I don't quite understand i think it is this it's this fascinating thing and and um Again, just to go back to, you know, this week's beer as a conversation, you know, a lot of breweries used to start, it's the artisan making of the beer first and then the venue came second. And because brew 
breweries are now the new pub um, and, you know, Matt's talked a lot about have presented competition to um, hotels um, as venues. Um, hotels are now looking to mimic what breweries have to offer and so they have the potential of going, well, we're going to put the stainless steel in to give that effect and because, you know, um, Matt, you talked about it, your experience with Eka. Um, it's no longer a sell around craft beer. There isn't sort of this barrier to entry for the mo- for a large majority of people who will say, I will only have a um, 4X. It's now, can you give me something like a 4X? And so there is this switch now where breweries are being created with a venue in mind and even Buckety's talked about this. You know, we were, they were really conscious about creating a venue first and they want good beer but – it's got to be 50-50 part of the offering, particularly because small venues. So I can just see that, it, um, you, know, you know, we're just in such a different landscape now. As an industry, the landscape is so different. And Smart Brew probably plays a role in continuing to change mm. that landscape, um, you know, to meet a need that is out there for the consumer today. Yeah, I can definitely see that play. I can see hotels coming up and putting in these kind of systems to do that kind of service. But I would just hope that more craft breweries fill the void. To be honest, like being yep. able to supply to market and all the rest of it. That, yep. that, as as a as a brewer myself, that's what I would more hope for rather than this other system where people that aren't necessarily in the craft brewery scene are making craft beer in yep. in, in in brackets. Because again, like the, the hopeless romantic in me that still believes in the you know those original where we used to argue over the definitions of craft beer. Um, you know, back in, in, in the day, that person still sits inside me, you know, thinking the same thing. But the market has changed. And, and, and you look at, you know, like enzymes and adjuncts were once, you know, an anathema to craft brewers. And now they are a feature of the craftiest of craft beers. And, uh, you know, in, in a world that's constantly changing, I kind of figure that, well, who am I to say what? brewing should be but I, I, I from a craftsman perspective um i completely understand your your, your your point of view i think craft beer too because of the you know influence of other players and taking craft on and because craft is not a protected thing i think maybe the the thing of craft is a little bit diluted i think good beer mm. is important yeah. to support um so i'll always back anything where people are producing good beer um, and then also independent beer, obviously being part of the Independent Brewers Association, I'll yeah. back independent because that's money in Australian people's pockets. So those are the two things I look for. Um, and anything that kind of goes outside that bubble or dilutes that is probably something against what I see the industry should be moving towards. That said, looking at it as a, if you're looking at opening a brewery, you know, again, 15 years ago, the people who were opening breweries saw the competition as the two big brewers and fighting for space on taps, you know, and then that was a battleground. If you open a brewery these days, that landscape has completely changed. We've talked about venues are opening tap rooms, so they're taking the fight to hotels. Hotels are now taking the fight back to breweries by getting in systems like this, and so you're actually competing against the people that you once wanted to ally for their taps, and then you've got Coles and Woolies, you know, also getting into the game for, for, for the retail space. It's a it, it's it, it's a battlefield out there. And can I add one more to yeah. that? That actually 
the market that we're in is no lo- we're no longer competing with beer mm. and there were, we were always beer was always competing with other alcoholic beverages but increasingly this sort of um, non-defined adult beverage um, the market is actually fundamentally different and so you, you know we've been talking about this a lot breweries are no longer just making beer they're making all sorts of products with that could have any definition and any label and any marketing and so you add that into the competitive landscape in terms of how broad it is and it's actually even even harder than it was when you were comp- when you knew who your um, competitors were and you knew what you were fighting against so I just add that into the mix of how challenging it is 15 years ago. You know, a little bit of hops and a pale ale, all of a sudden it stood out on shelves. (laughs) Now everyone's got a fantastic pale ale. So, you know, you've got to bring good liquid to the party. But then you you can't ignore the venue. You can't just be sitting in a dusty old shed, which you wheel a fermenter out of the way and wheel the bar in. That's also no longer... But it is funny, the, the romantic in you as a consumer, like I can sit there and go objectively, I can look at all of these things in the industry, I understand why they're happening, I know what's happening here, all of this. And then if you go, where are your favourite places to drink? What's your favourite? They are completely pull at the heartstrings. Like I might be like, I don't think that's the best beer in the country, but I love the venue, love the f- stuff behind the bar. Um, I can take my child, like I can, you know, like there's all of these other things that I still go, that's why I would rather drink there. And so that's and let's the let's face same. it, it's, it's the breweries that are the craftsmen that you talk about that actually do the hard graft are putting the halo over yeah. these smart brew systems because, yeah. but then again, the consumer that finds an attraction and doesn't dig further into into the true story. They don't, you know. They it's good enough for them is is the thing. But it's it, it's the breweries that are actually doing it that make that feeling, um, you know, possible. Yeah. And to be honest, if someone drinks a smart brew beer at a venue and then goes on to find other beers, great. It's a gateway. I'd rather drink that than seltzer. Let me put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> as, as someone that currently makes seltzer, Matt, uh, we'll have it. We'll have that discussion at another time. <laughs> seltzer has its place as well. Again, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I would just rather it was beer. Um, beer in its purer form. Same with me, mate. Hey, Same with me. Steve Brockman, we are about to run out, of, literally about to run out of tape. Back in the old in the old days, can I put you on the spot and see if you'll come back and join us next week? It's been great to to, to, to have you on. I'd love to, uh, you know, sort of get you back if you were keen. Yeah, this is fantastic. I'd love to come back, and if you'd uh, like me to have come back, I'll definitely do that. Well, our people will speak to your people, um, which means that we'll have a quick chat after the uh, recording stops. <laughs> <laughs> but that wraps up another week of news. Your hosts have been me, Matt Kirkegaard, Sabrina Kunz, and special guest star Steve Brockman, who will be back uh, in a repeat role. Uh, the show is produced by Vivian Topalovich and edited by Joe Helder. We thank Yakima Chief Hops, Rowling's Label Stickers and Packaging, Dixon Asia Pacific, and Steve Broxman thanks Dixon Asia Pacific as well, Lark Whiskey for their support in making this episode possible. Thank you for all for listening. Share your thoughts on the show by emailing producer at brewsnews.com.au or leave a review on your favourite podcasting service. Um, and remember, we still have a couple more of those Lark packs and it'll be your only chance to try that Lark Whiskey. And with that, we're out. Boom. Ha, ha, ha.